Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, I trust that we are grateful for this exhortation that we've already received today. It is truly a a powerful reminder to be friends of faithfulness. And Lord, we must confess that we, we struggle to be a faithful people. We must confess that if we are honest, we have to say, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We all waver, we all struggle, we all doubt and fear. We're beset by things that agitate us, that frighten us, that irritate us, that discourage us, that even press us towards a kind of despair and hopelessness. And Father, I pray that our consideration of what the Hebrews writer brought to his readers, a people who understood suffering, a people who understood doubt and fear, a people who understood the very real cost of following Jesus as Messiah in a world, even in a Jewish community that did not know him, that pushed back against those who would proclaim him and seek to be faithful to him. But the good word to that community is the same good word to us today. And I pray that we would draw from his encouragement encouragement for our own lives, a renewed sense of zeal and commitment, steadfastness to be who we are, to walk as a sanctified people. So, Father, I too ask that you would attend to my words, to my thoughts, that by your spirit you would attend to each heart and mind gathered here today. Minister to us according to our need and help us. Forgive us, strengthen us, build us up in this most holy faith. That Christ would be glorified in each one of us, in his church, and therefore in the world. Help us to be friends of faithfulness. We ask these things in his name. Amen. 
Well, this morning we come to what is the climax of the Hebrews writer's treatment of Jesus' priesthood. Uh, After this section this morning, he shifts over to an exhortation in view of these things, but this is the last piece of his instruction in in a climactic way regarding uh, Jesus' priesthood. If you think back of where we've been over the last several chapters, he began by identifying Jesus as a priest in terms of this distinction of uh, Melchizedek. He drew from Psalm 110 and the promise in that Psalm of David of a priest who would be a priest king, a priest king according to the order of Melchizedek. And he began to establish the superiority uh, of that priest and priesthood, first by uh, uh, comparing Melchizedek himself uh, specifically with Levi, the descendant of Abraham through whom the priesthood came. And he showed how in a very real way you had in the pain of tithes, of Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, the priest king who went out to meet him, Genesis 14, after the triumph of Abraham and his house over the assemblage of kings, this offering, this tithe that uh, was paid to Melchizedek, the writer says, uh, because Levi was in the loins of Abraham at that time, he effectively paid that tribute, and the tribute is paid from the lesser to the greater. So he first establishes the greatness of Melchizedek, and then he begins to unfold how his priesthood was a superior priesthood, primarily at the outset because it is the ultimate priesthood. The promise of Psalm 110 was for a different priesthood that would supplant, that would ultimately transcend the Levitical priesthood. So he makes that case in chapter 7, and then he says, and of course we understand that because the law, the covenant at Sinai, was founded on the Levitical priesthood, if there is to be a change of priesthood, there is to be a change of law as well, a change of covenant as well. And that leads him in chapter 8 then to discuss the, the betterness of this covenant. And he turns to Jeremiah 31, very clear Uh, passage in the Hebrew scriptures promising a new covenant. And in the wider context of Jeremiah, a new covenant associated with the coming seed of David and the establishing of his reign. So chapter 8, then, he, he again deals with the distinction in the covenant. If there is a better priesthood associated with Melchizedek, so also the covenant associated with him is going to be a better covenant. And then in chapter 9, he begins to show specifically the features and the operation of the covenant at Sinai and the way in which it administered, mediated, ultimately uh, held together um, the, the covenant with the sons of Israel. The Levitical priesthood was the means by which that covenant relationship with Yahweh was sustained. But he shows how ultimately it fell short. It itself fell short, and there was failure under that covenant, failure of that relationship, which is the basis for, again, the promise of a new priest and a new priesthood. And that leads us into chapter 10. Uh, This morning we're going to be considering 
uh, verse 11 through 18, but I'd like to go back and read from verse 1, just because we're, we've been a couple weeks out, and I want to set the context again. But again, this is him bringing his argument, his instruction to its apex, to, his, to its high point. And what flows out of this then is an exhortation to these saints in view of it. But in verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, For the law, and by that he means Israel's covenant, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things, it can never by the same sacrifices, the priestly system by which it was upon which it was based and by which it was sustained, it can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Very common sense observation. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But as it is in those sacrifices, there is a constant reminder. There is a consciousness, a constant reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But on the other hand, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. What will? In context, the fulfilling of this ministration that failed with respect to Israel's covenant. By this will, then, he says, this will that this one comes to fulfill, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus, the Messiah, once for all. So also every priest, according to the former covenant, every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for all time himself, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Drawing again on Psalm 110. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us concerning this. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their mind. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, their unfaithfulness to the covenant, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So he's shown that the failure of the Levitical priestly ministration was both tied to the iniquity of both the worshiper and the priest themselves, the fact that they had to be offering for themselves, but also annually offering on behalf of the people whose consciences were never clean. But more importantly, more foundationally, the failure of that priesthood was by divine design. It was a failure associated with non-ultimacy, non-ultimacy of that priesthood, even as the non-ultimacy of the covenant itself. All by divine intent. Those things, he said, all pointed forward 
to a new priesthood, a new priestly ministration, a new covenant, in which what those things portrayed and prepared for would actually be fully realized. Fully realized. And so Jesus' sacrifice was a better sacrifice, as he said in chapter 9, in that it fulfilled the divine will to redeem to purge, to renew the creation from death and the curse. The will of God that had been made known from the beginning. When he says, behold, I come, it is written in the roll of the book to do your will. What will? The will that God had made known from the beginning. The will of God that was to be bound up in the Messiah, in the messianic work, in the fullness of the times. Well, I've titled this, because the focal point, and hopefully this will become clear, I, I thought, how do I want to approach this? And I don't so much want to go verse by verse. I want to deal with it in terms of the big idea that's here. It's multifaceted. But if you note, the centerpiece of this is this idea of sanctity or being sanctified. By the offering of the Messiah, we are sanctified once for all. Verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah once for all. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This is the climactic uh, argument in the writer as he's dealt with Jesus as the Melchizedekian king priest. And I've titled this The Triumph of the King Priest because that's where he really brings it to a sharp point. He's talked about all of the dynamics of promise and fulfillment and and typology and representation, but now he brings it to the, the fine point, which is that the triumph, what has come in this triumph, is this thing called sanctity. And I want to treat it because, again, of the way that we tend to think about sanctified, sanctity, sanctification. I I want to treat it in terms of two, two things. Triumph over the enslaving powers and then triumph that is expressed in taking captivity captive. Taking captivity captive. In other words, triumph that has a kind of military, but certainly it has a very Jewish Old Testament significance to it. The promise of Yahweh to arise and to deal with the issue of enslavement and to release the captives and to take captivity captive. Hopefully, as we go through this, you'll understand why I've chosen to express it in that sort of a way, this idea of sanctity as the writer deals with it here. So the first thing, then, is is kind of drawn out of the first few verses, this thing of triumph over enslaving powers. Israel's hope in God's return to Zion in the messianic work was really the hope of a conquest of subjugating power that would result in deliverance. That's the way the prophets spoke of Israel's plight and what God was promising to do. He would arise and he would deal with that which had enslaved his people. 
He would deal with the enslaving powers. And you see this in this passage, even as he draws from Psalm 110, in two respects. A triumph associated with his death, and then a triumph associated with resurrection. The main idea here, and again, this would have been very familiar to a Jewish audience. Jesus, by his messianic work, has stripped the powers, both human and the spiritual powers behind the human powers. He has stripped them of their authority and dominion. Remember, Jesus spoke very much in this way. You can't plunder the strong man's house unless you first bind him. This is the hour, as he was coming, approaching his death in John, this is the hour and the power of darkness. But if I be lifted up, I will draw men to myself. Now is the hour. This is the power of darkness. This is the climax of confrontation between God and the powers associated with his cross. Human powers and the spiritual power behind them exercise dominion through and in the context of this thing that we call the curse. The curse creational alienation and death that has fallen man at the center. That's how the powers operate. We saw that last week as we looked at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. What we know as earthly power, and if you will, the satanic, be, satanic power behind it, operates in the context of and through the instrumentality of the curse, alienation, and death. That's where they derive their power. They are usurpers. Usurpers who use death as their primary means of coercion and control. All rulers in this world rule in that way. And the satanic power behind them ultimately uses or exercises, cultivates lordship in that way. Control and coercion through death. And not just physical death, but death as speaking to the reality of human alienation. Did God really say... Can he be trusted? Can you really trust him to have your best interests at heart? The powers work through alienation and all of the things that come with it. Well, the point is that Jesus took that weapon of the curse away. He took it away as a weapon when he took all human beings and death itself with him into the grave. This is that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. We are convinced of this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And all died in order that those who live should no longer live according to the pattern of humanness that they had formerly known, but that they should now live for him. 
in a whole new way. Jesus put death to death in himself. He bore the curse in himself. And we say, but the curse is still around. Well, in the sense of Romans 8, in that we can say that the whole creation is groaning under the curse to which it's been subjected, but only as it is waiting for the day when it will itself experience, it will participate itself experientially in the redemption and renewal that Jesus inaugurated in himself. And that will happen when the sons of God are revealed. The day of resurrection, the day of consummation. But the power of the curse has been broken because the power of death has been broken. That's why Jesus said, whoever embraces me has passed out of death into life. Has passed out of death into life. So triumph in his death. Triumph in term, with respect to the enslaving powers accomplished by his death. But also, secondly, brought forward into its ultimate goal through his resurrection. Jesus' death, because he bore the curse of the creation in himself and took it, he judged it, condemned it, put it to death in himself. He put to death the former creational order defined and governed by alienation and death. But God's intent was not simply to deal with the curse, but to reverse, to renew, to restore. You see this even in the prophets. You know, as Isaiah says, that God did not make the world to be formless and void. He did not intend that the case. It's the only other time you see that expression, tohu wabohu, formless and void. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and they were formless and void. Really, the idea is uninhabited, lacking inhabitants, and incapable of sustaining inhabitants. A non-habitation with non-inhabitants. That's the initial state. And Isaiah says God did not create the world to be that way, but to be filled. To be filled. And so the resurrection of Jesus looks to the fact that God had a goal beyond simply dealing with the curse or even a goal of destroying the creation in some sense. His goal was to renew and to perfect it. Again, Isaiah, you draw near the end of that prophecy, behold, I make a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed creation. And the language in Isaiah 11 is that a renewal that will show a created order that none of us have ever known. The lion will lie down with the lamb, right? The ox will eat, or the, the, the lion will eat straw like an ox, and the child will play by the hole of, uh, of the cobra, And they shall not kill or destroy in all my holy mountain. But the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The purpose of God for the creation. And so Jesus' death, the putting to death of the curse and death, culminated with life. His resurrection as the first fruits of new creation. 
Nothing new in all of this, but this is the backdrop for, again, understanding Jesus' priestly work and, and what has come forth from that and what it means now in terms of this triumph. And as I said even last week, new creation means a new creational order. If the former order was defined by alienation and death, the new order is defined by reconciliation reharmonization and life. And if the former order operated according to a certain paradigm of power that uses coercion and, and, and control through death, through alienation, there is a whole new order of power that has been put in place. And I know I've said this before many times, but I think even as mature Christians, we still tend to think about power in terms of the former order of things. I think I even mentioned last week that we tend to think about God wielding his power in the way that the kings of the earth wield their power. A ruler on a throne dispatching people and circumstances in some sort of of remote, abstract, arbitrary way seeking compliance under the threat of death and judgment and condemnation. And Jesus went again in the upper room as he's trying to interpret his own impending death and the meaning of it for his disciples. He wanted them to understand, first of all, that you're going to see the power of God most clearly and truthfully evident in the death you're going to watch. This is the king of the Jews. The Jews had a sense of how Yahweh would arise and wield his power in order to overthrow the subjugating powers and establish his reign, become king over all the earth. And the cross was the farthest thing from their sense of how God would show his power. And Jesus said, again, there is a way that the world does power. You all know it. We all experience it. Jesus' confrontation with power, with Pilate. What is power? What is kingship? What is kingdom? My kingdom's not of this world. The Gentiles call themselves benefactors, the lords of the Gentiles, but they lord it over you. Power is a mean, power works in the context, again, in the old creation, it works through alienation, fear, pecking order, who's on top, who's second, who's third. A new creation means a new kind of power, defined by God himself and the realm that he inhabits and presides over. What does that look like? It looks like the person in the work of Jesus, the Messiah. You want to know the truth of who God is. You have to see him in the Messiah. That's where the full revelation of God comes. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. And we see in Jesus that power is manifested, expressed, the truth of God's power in self-giving love. 
And if you think, well, that's really kind of a movement in the New Testament, that's not really how God represented himself, go back and read Hosea's prophecy again. The spurned God who says, all that I've given to you, you've used to woo your lovers and to set me aside. And I'm not going to give you up. I will pursue you. And I will win you. And I will make a covenant with the creation for your sake. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness. I will betroth you to me forever. Think of even the way that we are. If we had a spouse or someone that we loved who was unfaithful to us and ran off, we'd say, done with that, right? God says, I'm not done. I will pursue you. I will woo you. I will win you. I will transform you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? God does power in a whole new way, and new creation has implemented a new kind of power. We could put it this way. What has come in the the resurrection, the death and resurrection of the Messiah, is the bringing together, what began in incarnation, the bringing together of heaven and earth. I've said it before, Jesus, Jesus' prayer, when his disciples say, teach us how to pray, it's your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And we pray that in a, you know, a mechanical way or whatever, you know, in some sort of a ritual way. But Jesus is saying, you want to know how to interact with your father in the light of me, this is how. This is what it is to bind yourself to the truth of God. His intentionality that his realm, the heavenly realm, would merge with the earthly realm. As Paul says in the end that God would be all in all. So many Christians think about this thing of this world as, again, just so much trash to be burned up and to go away. And maybe God's going to make some kind of new heavens and new earth, but it's going to be a whole different weird thing. And for so many Christians, the goal is simply to die and to have our spirits go off to heaven. And yet God created this creation very good, and he created it to flood it and fill it with his own loving, wise lordship through human beings. New creation means the merging of heaven and earth and a new kind of lordship. Whoever would be the greatest must be the least. Whoever would be the master must be the servant. That's not the way we do power in our world. And again, at the center of that purpose, at the center of this new creation, is man becoming truly what God created him to be. And this is the idea of Jesus exalted to take his place beside his father as the enthroned priest-king. I've said it over and over and over again, but the argument the author of Hebrews is making is that that consummative outcome for Jesus is the consummative outcome for all who are his. His resurrection, his exaltation, his glorification to be seated at the right hand of power as the enthroned priest king is the very inheritance that's marked out for all of his people. Think again about Romans 8. If we are in the Messiah, animated, 
being transformed by his spirit, then we are heirs of all that he is heir of. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. So this triumph is in the first instance the conquering, the overthrowing of the subjugating powers. Not the Romans as the Jews expected. Perhaps in our context, not the liberals or the Republicans or the Democrats or whatever. It's not the overthrowing of those kinds of powers. It's overthrowing the powers that drove the former cursed creation and its order, its way of being. As Jesus said, now understanding what has come in the Messiah, that when he died, all died, and he lives in order that all who live might now live for him, we no longer can regard any human being according to the flesh. We can't think about anybody or the created order or anything else. We used to even think about Jesus in that old way, but we don't any longer. Everything changed with the resurrection of the Messiah. So the, the, the overthrowing of the subjugating powers, well, what flows out of that? Is it just simply for God to conquer that which stands in antithesis to him, or does he have a larger goal? And if Christ's work by his own ordering of his sacrificial self-giving around the Passover and its significance. Jesus connected his own death and he wanted his disciples to connect his death and its meaning with Exodus, right? The Exodus. That's what Passover was about. In a very real way, God overthrew the subjugating powers in Egypt. Pharaoh's army destroyed in the sea. And the great song of triumph, the song of Moses, Exodus 15, says what? God has conquered the Egyptians. Thank you, God. That's wonderful. You destroyed the subjugating power. Full stop. No. He has brought us out to bring us to his holy mountain. He has brought us out to take us to his dwelling place. So the, in, the conquest, the overthrowing of the enslaving powers, sin, death, alienation, had its goal in taking captivity captive. That's what Paul draws on in Ephesians, right? That idea of taking captivity captive. And the reason I like that expression here is, and we'll see this, is because the point is not God conquered the subjugating powers in order to set captivity free, though he did do that. God didn't simply tell the Israelites after they passed through the Red Sea, you're free, go live your lives. I've dealt with your slavery, you're free. He said, I did this to bring you to me. God liberated the captives to take captivity captive. Captive to what? Captive to himself. Now we're starting to get at this idea of sanctity. Jesus' death and resurrection were his triumph over sin and death, over the powers, but ultimately not for himself. For mankind. For ultimately the whole creation. 
He took our humanity in himself in order to put it to death in its pseudo form, to heal it, to restore it, to renew it, that it would be summed up in him. His triumph is for the sake of the creation. And so this liberation, the setting free of the captives, when you conquer, and that's again what Jesus said, you can't begin to plunder a strong man's house until you first bind the strong man. God had to deal with the enslaving powers in order to liberate the slaves, liberate the captives. The language of Isaiah 1, that, or Isaiah 61, that Jesus quoted in the synagogue at Nazareth. He reads from the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to declare, proclaim the day of the Lord's jubilee, the release. This day, this is fulfilled in your hearing, right? So there is the setting free of the captives, but it's liberation unto sanctification, liberation unto sanctification. The problem that we have when we come to a text like this is we've been conditioned to think of sanctification in this kind of parallel counterpart of justification. Justification says, okay, God's made you right uh, by the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus. Now sanctification is our own progressive, uh, you know, becoming more holy. Whether we see it as the work of God or by the Spirit or us and, or the, you know, the synergism of all of that, nonetheless, sanctification is this process of me becoming more holy. The life of my justification, if you will. And that's not what the writer is getting at here. That's why I'm using these phrases that I'm using. So the pledge of a priest king. The writer turns back again to Psalm 110 to make this point. He says, Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward till his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What is he getting at? Again, the pledge of a priest king in Psalm 110, even as it draws on the the Davidic covenant, was the promise of Israel's liberation, her ingathering, and her reconsecration to God. Reconsecration to God. The son of David would arise and he would execute his rule by restoring God's dwelling among his people And we see later, even as that comes uh, to expression in in Zechariah's prophecy, that this branch of David would not simply restore God's dwelling place in terms of the temple as they understood it, but the restoration of the dwelling place would be the forming of a new sanctuary by the ingathering of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Very familiar to us, you know, New Testament, and Peter... Uh, right? Coming to him, a living stone used. Living stones are built into a spiritual house. 
But even in the Old Testament, the prophets were saying that when Yahweh arises and when his dwelling place is restored in connection with the messianic servant, it's going to see the ingathering of the nations. Isaiah 54. Zion has to expand her tent curtains and lengthen her cords and strengthen the pegs because she's going to be gathering in. More are the children of the restored woman than the former one who was made bereft because of the work of the Messiah. The Hebrews writer understood Jesus' triumph and his enthronement as high priest in terms of God's goal of a sanctified people. That's the point that I'm making. That's what he's emphasizing here. The sacrifice of God was unto a sanctified people. And he does a shift in grammar from verse 10 to 14 that kind of emphasizes a, a nuance with this. In the first, in, in verse 10, he says, we are having been sanctified. And then in verse 14, he says, we are sanctified. We, literally, it's the idea of the sanctified ones. We are having been sanctified, and then he refers to the sanctified ones the having been sanctified ones. Both of them emphasize sanctity as a state of perfection. As a state of perfection. The first in verse 10 more emphasizes the completed realization of that perfection. The second one emphasizes that completed perfection as the permanent perpetual state of Christ's people. See, this isn't how we think about sanctification most of the time. Sanctification is this process whereby I become a more holy person. More obedient, more like Jesus. He's treating this as a present perfection. We are having been we are having been sanctified. And he associates that sanctity idea with perfection. Well, how does that make any sense? Because what he's talking about, his idea of this perfection and this sanctification secured by Jesus' death and resurrection, he's speaking in eschatological terms, not practical terms. He's not talking about how we behave. He's talking about what has come in the Messiah. And that may rock our boat a little bit, but he's not talking about how we behave. And I'm not saying it's irrelevant how we behave, but that's not the point in this context. Remember, again, he's bringing his argument about Jesus' priesthood as the high priest and king according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, what is that secured? It's secured this thing called sanctity. It's an eschatological argument. What has come in the Messiah? He's not talking about moral, religious, practical, ethical, behavioral things, but a state, a new creational state, a new reality. And as you take this and flesh it out, there, there's really kind of two aspects to this um, that, that I think are both important. The first is his insistence that those who have been set apart to God, 
that's this sanctified idea, consecrated, are truly perfected. Well, I'm not perfect. Are you perfect? What is he getting at here? How can he say that we are perfected? What he means by this is not morally perfect or behaviorally perfect, as we understand perfection, but made complete. Those who are sanctified because of the death and resurrection of the Messiah are complete, made truly human by sharing in the glorified Messiah. Paul gets at this in Colossians 2. See if I can find it here real quick. Again, in verse 9, he says, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Not you will be, not you might be. You have been made complete. Even as he is the head over all rule and authority. You have been made complete. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of judgments against us, which were hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross. And therefore, he says, if you've been raised up in Christ... Keep seeking the things that are above. You died. Your lives are hidden with Christ in God. Do we think of ourselves as having been made complete? Not if we're looking at our behavior, but in terms of what the writer is saying, what has come in the Messiah, what has come is the completion that is a human community or a new way of being human that is defined by Jesus himself. So the first thing, again, is that those who have been sanctified in the Messiah are truly perfected. Not as a matter of an external transfer of, you know, something called righteousness or whatever to our account, but by incorporation, He is the complete one. We have been made complete in him. The sanctity is by incorporation. We are already raised up in Jesus, seated in the heavenly realm in him. This is Ephesians 1 and 2. Do we believe it? Already made alive in him. Already raised up in seated in the heavenly realm in him. doesn't mean we're up in heaven. It means that the realm that God inhabits is now the realm that we inhabit. Heaven and earth have been brought together in the Messiah, and we are merging of heaven and earth people in a very real way. We are the people in whom the reality of the bringing together of heaven and earth is manifest in the world. We are seated in the heavenly realm. Our citizenship is in that realm. And all we're waiting for is our bodies to be participants in that. 
So we're already raised up in Jesus, but here's the second point. It does not presently appear what it shall be. We are children, sons, and heirs. What has come? What is the significance of Jesus' triumph as priest and king according to the order of Melchizedek? His sonship is now filling the world, producing sons and heirs who have come of age, Galatians 4, but who haven't yet received their full inheritance. But we're already sons and heirs who've come of age. And again, the writer draws this out from Psalm 110. Jesus has sat down as the completed man, the sanctified man, the man who is enthroned king-priest. But what? Waiting until the time when all of his enemies are put under his feet. Well, wait a minute. I thought he overthrew the subjugating powers. So what is he waiting for? Well, Paul says there is one enemy that remains. It, too, is a conquered and vanquished enemy. But it's a kind of effusion of that conquered enemy, which is mortality itself. Jesus has put death to death in himself. That's why he can say, whoever leaves, whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? I am the resurrection and the life. Well, there is a vestige of the conquest of death, which is this thing called mortality. And that's the last enemy that remains. Our spirits are alive in the Messiah and being renewed day by day, but the outer man is perishing. So there is an already but not yet dimension to this sanctity, to this consecration Jesus conquered death in all of its aspects, but mortality is not yet banished. But the present share in his resurrection. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. Not will, not might, did. He raised us up in him and seated us in the heavenly realm in the Messiah. And yes, The body is dead. Yes, the body is moving towards greater corruption. But the renewal of the inner man is the promise of the renewal of the body, right? You say, I know all this. You say this stuff all the time. I know I do. But it's stuff we have to keep up here because we don't live this way. We don't live as if this was true. If you've been raised up in Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts and your minds. It's a constant discipline of life. It's the work of repentance. Paul doesn't say that repentance is about saying, you did this bad thing, don't do that anymore. He says, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? He doesn't say, don't sleep with prostitutes because that's bad. He says, why will you join Christ to a harlot? It's a whole different dynamic. Don't you know who you are? So 
So I want to conclude just by pulling together some of these things from, from this whole section, but, but kind of focusing on this. He, he turns back to Jeremiah 31 again. The first time he used it to show this promise of a new covenant. Now he is really kind of showing where the superiority of this covenant lies. And it has to do with this principle, again, of sanctity or taking captivity captive. Those who've been sanctified, not a behavioral thing, an ontological thing, a status thing, a state of being thing, those who've been sanctified in the Messiah are perfected in him as made complete in him, as sharing in his life as consummate image son. And the spirit is the substance of that present perfection. Think again about Romans 8, where Paul goes from uh, the Spirit of God to, to the Spirit of Christ to Christ himself. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, how is Christ in me? He's a glorified, resurrected, physical man. How is he in me? His life, his likeness, the truth of his mind by his Spirit. When I send the Spirit... The Spirit will take what is mine and will impart it to you. He will teach you. He will lead you into all truth. He will cause you to know me and be conformed to me in the inner man. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, the Father's in me, and you are also in me. Greater, you will do the works that I have done, and greater works these you will do because I go to the Father. What does that mean? I'm sending the Spirit. The spirit who is me, the spirit of the Messiah, who will perfect that work in you. So the indwelling spirit is the substance of this present perfection, but he's also the pledge of its fullness. He's the Arabon, Ephesians 1, the pledge of the redemption of the body to come. But the writer is noting that, that, yes, the Spirit is that primary witness to this reality of sanctity, but long before Jesus came, he was already testifying to it. So now he takes Jeremiah's prophecy and he says, this was the Spirit's promise. Right? 15, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31. Well, I thought that was what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah was articulating the promise of the Spirit. Long before Jesus' birth, the Spirit was testifying to God's intent for his creation. This thing of sanctification, forgiveness, covenant, renewal. The Spirit was the one who mediated, who oversaw, who governed and sustained Israel's relationship with God. The Spirit was in the midst of the people. The Spirit was that point of connection between God and his people. And in the midst of the failure of the covenant, in the midst of the failure of the covenant people, the Spirit was saying, days are coming when I will make a new covenant. The Spirit hadn't failed in his role of ministering and mediating that covenant, but he was pledging a day of covenant renewal associated with the messianic servant. The spirit had promised covenant renewal, but as I've said so many times, what does that require? Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. 
Why? What fractured the covenant? What caused God to depart? What caused him to drive the people into exile? Covenant infidelity. Israel's sin. So Israel's hope that one day Yahweh would return, that one day he would renew the covenant relationship with them, that one day he would again dwell in their midst, the implied premise behind that is that God would arise and deal with this thing that stands between us and him, that thing that caused him to depart, that thing that caused him to drive us away. This principle of alienation, covenant violation, unfaithfulness, Israel's failed sonship. That's the particular focus that the writer has in mind now as he returns to Jeremiah 31. It's not so much the promise of a new covenant, although that's there, but a new covenant grounded in forgiveness. Sanctity grounded in forgiveness. So he presents this citation then as the Spirit's longstanding affirmation of what he himself has been saying to his readers, which is that Jesus' offering has perfected for all time those who are sanctified that the Spirit would do that work. That's the point he's making. He says, by one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us concerning this. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31. He's saying that this, that Jeremiah 31, this promise of a new covenant, affirms what he's been saying, which is that the offering of Christ has brought about this sanctity of, of perfection. Well, just a few things that I want to pull out as observations about this and wrapping this up. The Spirit's promise of a coming day of forgiveness and covenant renewal, it's the promise of a forgiveness that isn't atonement or forgiveness in the way that Israel knew it, but a forgiveness that means there is no remembrance any longer of the former things. It is a complete and an everlasting forgiveness, a putting away as far as the, have, uh, as the east is from the west, to quote the psalmist. But that promise, which he attributes to the Spirit, was the Spirit's tacit assurance, even in the time of Jeremiah, that Yahweh would yet have and gather to himself a people fully and permanently consecrated to him. That's how he's tying this to this idea of sanctification. (coughs) By the Spirit making this promise, he is tacitly affirming that God will yet have a a covenant people, a sanctified people, a people fully, permanently, exhaustively consecrated to him. And that has now come in Jesus the king-priest according to the order of Melchizedek, the one who comes to do Yahweh's will. Yahweh's will to have a fully sanctified people has been realized in him. Not by something that he did being put into our account, but by him being the beginning of a new creation, by a new human community in him as the last Adam. 
Another thing to notice about this is that this idea of forgiveness of sins is here treated as a covenantal idea. You say, well, what are you saying? My sins aren't forgiven? My personal sins aren't forgiven? No, I'm not saying that. But the idea here is that forgiveness of sin is the basis of covenant renewal. Sin was the basis of covenant failure. Covenant renewal based in forgiveness. And the Jewish readers would have understood that because they understood that personal issues with God, personal forgiveness personal sins, that personal life with God was a covenantal reality. We don't think that way, particularly as Americans. It's me and God. Nobody even else has to exist. But for Israel, an individual Israelite thought of himself within the definition of the covenant. And therefore, he thought of himself corporately. Whatever forgiveness there is in a personal sense, my point is, is that it's bound up within this covenant reality and what that implies and what it puts in front of us. What was true of Israel under the Sinai covenant is true of the new covenant community. Read Ephesians 2 and 3. 1 Peter, again, 1 Corinthians 12. This is first and foremost, he's talking about a forgiveness that enables God to restore covenant relationship. It's not just about me individually and my catalog of sins and whether Jesus died for me or not. It's, that's not what he's talking about here. Another point in this is that this sanctity or this perfection, this consecration, this uh, uh, completion of our humanness in the Messiah is grounded uh, in a complete and permanent forgiveness that tells us that the circumstances necessitating that forgiveness have been fully dealt with. In our vernacular, we say Jesus died for all of my sins. But the point here is that the death of Christ was the dealing with the whole of the creational problem. It it had Israel at its heart, but it, it involved the whole creation. Why? Because the whole creation was cursed. The work of Christ was comprehensive in its scope. And it was comprehensive, not only in terms of dealing with the whole creation, but in terms of dealing dealing conclusively, finally, fully with everything that was the problem. Jesus resolved Israel's dilemma as embodying Israel in himself, but in that way he he, he dealt with the dilemma of the whole human race. Bearing it in himself, overcoming it by his death. And so by his resurrection, his death and resurrection, he has secured full and everlasting forgiveness. Not simply, here's the point I'm trying to get at, not simply as just forgiveness uh, or dealing with our guilt, 
but a forgiveness that is unto the renewal and the completion. If in the context, a forgiveness that is unto sanctity. The completing of his human creature in the Messiah and through him of the whole creation. Is forgiveness important? Yes, but God's goal in forgiveness is sonship. And not just sonship, but the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus. We want to think as if the issue is, here's my sin. Has God forgiven my sin? Oh, he's forgiven it. Good. That's, that's good. I'm okay with God. And life goes on, and it's the same person living the same life but feeling forgiven and waiting till the next infraction so we can again feel forgiven again. But this is a forgiveness in which God deals conclusively with the whole issue of the curse and alienation and death. Such that what comes from this is a forgiveness that is unto cosmic renewal. That has human beings at the center of it. We are having been sanctified in the Messiah. And what this results in, what God's goal is as it pertains to human beings, is that God will have covenant children who are children indeed. In the language of Jeremiah, sons and daughters who have Torah written on their hearts and their minds. No longer will every man have to teach his brother and his neighbor, and the priest won't have to teach people saying, Know the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Torah written in their hearts and their minds. And so Jeremiah's promise, which the writer says is the Spirit's promise, that has been realized in the sanctified Son of Man. We saw this in the high priestly prayer. Jesus' sanctification has nothing to do with his moral behavior. It has to do with him setting his part in the, himself apart. In the role of the book, it is written to me, I come to do your will. A body you've prepared for me. Consecration unto the purpose of God. That's realized in him. The full realization of God's design for his human creature. The promise of Jeremiah, what has come in the high priest? What is the climax of Jesus' priestly status and ministration? That the creator God has realized his purpose to have imaged children who have the living truth of his own life and mind graven into the very fabric of their being. The issue here is not the promise, one day when the Messiah comes, you'll have a deeper insight into the scriptures. You'll have a deeper insight into God's laws and commandments, and you'll have a spirit-empowered resolve to keep God's law. That's not the point that the writer's making. It's the promise, again, of a new human community in the Messiah such that the living truth of, because what is Torah about? It's God's disclosure of himself, his mind, his purpose. That that will be graven into our very beings. God's design, when he, and even what Jeremiah is speaking of here, is a family of image children who by their full conformity to the sanctified one can proclaim together with him to see me as to see the Father.
What a remarkable thing. It's not something we can say very easily or very well now, right? But that's the goal. What is the great triumph of the king priest? It's that. It's that. And that, again, is the way that Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer. I've read this before, but I'm just going to read this and, again, have you port this through this grid. This is Jesus' climactic instruction to his disciples. This is where he ends it. This is where he brings it to a head. And the way that he constructs this prayer and lets his disciples in on it is very much because he wants them to understand these things. I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you gave me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, the name that you've given me. I guarded them. Not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture should be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word. I've given them the truth. Not just things I've spoken, but the full revelation of you in myself. What they've seen and and observed and heard in me. The world has hated them because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. I don't ask you to take them out of this world, but to keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Has nothing to do about behavior my personal sanctification in the way we think of it. Consecrate them. Set them apart to yourself. Gather them to yourself in the truth. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world with that. Having, we are having been sanctified in the Messiah. That's our witness to the world. I do not ask in behalf of these, or I, I skipped a verse, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. Think again about Hebrews 10. In the role of the book, it is written to me, I come to do your will. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you've given me, I've given it to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected, in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, sanctified in truth, in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, though the world has not known you, I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. 
I've made your name known to them, and I will continue to make it known by the Spirit, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus' last words to his disciples. Profoundly important. And saints, again, this defines our mission. What is our mission in the world? To manifest that we are having been sanctified. That we are made complete in the Messiah. In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you are made complete. You are made complete. Sharers in the divine nature in him. And this work of Christiformity is producing this outcome as it did in Jesus that truly one day we will be able to see, I I think about all the time because it's just so foreign, that we will be able to say truthfully, to see me is to see the Father. To see us, to see me, is to see the Father. The glory of God in the face of Christ is the glory that will be fully perfected in our faces, but even now, even now. Father, I pray that you would help us to get our heads around these things and to see how immensely practical this is. It's really a lamentable thing that so often, I don't know so much in this congregation, but certainly throughout the American church, We think about life in Christ in terms of better conformity to what we think of as a standard of holiness, getting our act together, behaving more properly. Yes, now we're justified in Jesus. Now we've got to start working on our sanctification. Help us to understand that first and foremost, fundamentally, We are having been sanctified. We have been liberated to be taken captive, possessed by our God, because we are taken up in your life, in Jesus our Lord. We are the dwelling of the living God in the Spirit. Father, these are profound things that easily escape us in our day-to-day lives, And we don't live as if these things are true. I pray that you would help us to see that what our great high priest has accomplished has raised us up, made us a sanctified people, and has ensured that one day that consecration in the full transforming of our humanness, body, spirit, will be complete. But let that be our mission. Let that be our mandate. Let that be our vocation. Let that be our pursuit of sanctification, that we would strive in all things to grow up into Christ, who is the head, that we would become more truly who we are in him, that our our mandate and our burden and our, our labor would be authenticity, not ethics, not religiosity, not morality, but authenticity. Christiformity. Father, help us in these things. May they be the perpetual preoccupation of our hearts and minds. Bless them to us and cause them to bear their fruit. For his sake we pray. Amen.